0: Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me?
1: Ah, yes. My name is Anna Malazowski.
0: Okay, I would have gotten the last name pretty close, but probably not correct. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard one.
0: It's the M-L that I I was like. That's
1: what everybody says.
0: Yeah, that's a tough pronunciation. But Mm -hmm. anyways, Um, now, I'm always fascinated by artists and creative people and basically how they come to get made or like what I refer to as get made. Like, so were your parents creative? Was your childhood creative? Like how did you even get into being creative?
1: Well, the fact is that my childhood was a creative. My dad is a sculptor himself. So one thing is that he, and I grew up in East Germany, and in East Germany, you didn't necessarily get to decide what you wanted to become. There was a good chunk of your opportunities came from how well you performed in school, if your parents were in the party, you did or did not get uh, university study, place to study, depending on all kinds of factors. So my dad didn't actually study as an artist in the GGR, the German Democratic Republic. But he became a carpenter first. From there, towards the end of the communist era in East Germany, he started taking evening classes to become an artist and eventually artist and eventually started studying. So he first studied to become an artist when he was in his early 30s. So relatively late after the war came down. We moved from Bautzen, a tiny city, to Dresden. And I so I grew up as a child for my childhood and school and kindergarten basically spending a lot of time at his studio both at the university and then the studio he had afterwards and there were a lot of different studios at Wells and some of them were really funky and then they gradually became better and I also helped as a teenager my dad with uh, work whenever he's colorblind so it's funny because whenever he would do photoshop He would ask me if I could come and help him figure out all the reds and greens. But honestly, to have a childhood surrounded by a lot of artists and my dad being an artist made me not want to be an artist. There was no intention ever to become an artist because I also saw how hard it is to have that lifestyle. How hard, not just financially, how hard it is. I mean, that's one thing. But then on the other hand, also how hard it is emotional for you to always expose your or like question yourself and question your environment and have all of these investigations and questions that you do as an artist naturally in order to make your work and so for me that was a bit off-putting rather than what I wanted to do and so I after high school I ended up going to Norway as in in a European volunteer service for one year where I worked with uh, adults uh, with disability in a tiny, tiny thing of a town for a year. And there I ran into a glass studio as a tourist, honestly, and the islands of Lofoten in North Norway and really fell in love immediately with this material. So fascinated by it and ended up going to learn it. And I actually did two years of learning how to work with glass before I even entered university. Because the university I wanted to study at, you needed to present a portfolio already. So they wanted you to have prior experience. And I really like my biggest goal back then was to uh, be an assistant in a glass studio and not really ever and never thought about making art as much as creating things. And I hadn't really a clear idea what that meant.
0: It's a very interesting choice because like, I know a number of people who are and have always been assistants, but Mm -hmm. never sort of like the 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 name on the studio, let's say. And they're perfectly happy. Yeah, like there there's different types of creative people that some people that simply just love the process of creating Mm -hmm. and oftentimes they end up just enjoying being the assistant to help to build things and I appreciate them and I and I oftentimes their craftsmanship is is you know the most magnificent Mm -hmm. by far because like they're not out for the name and the prestige and all this kind of stuff and oftentimes they're not even worrying about sales or marketing or anything like that they're just saying like My job is to make the most beautiful thing and that's what Mm -hmm. I do every day. I kind of of miss that idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I must say like it funny enough, although I wanted to be an assistant and that was kind of as far as I would see for myself. Since I started university, I've always just made my own work and never actually had a job other than doing my own work. And I know that's quite unique for a lot of artists to kind of start off (laughs) working for someone else and then going slowly after grad school, maybe into their own practice. And I just right away did my own thing. I had right out of undergrad a solo show at a glass museum in Denmark. They have a project there called The Study, which is specifically for young artists to really get to try out ideas in a museum with a big solo show that you prepare for a year and a half. So you have a lot of time to make it and support. And it's a really uh, nice way for somebody that has not that much exhibiting experience to really put on an exhibition. And that was really good for me. And it really helped me also feel confident. And from there on, it just kind of did its own thing. But I also feel like I'm more comfortable in a position, like in a background, in a way. I don't I don't really, you know, you were talking about how artists, like there's all this uh, ego involved in wanting to be a famous artist that everybody looks at. And I don't really have the personality in it. I often like kill myself with that because... <laughs> When I have openings, I just wait outside until they're over <laughs> because I'm like, people are here to see my art, not me. Like, why would I be here? There's no point in me being here. I made all this stuff. I can leave now. I'm done. Like my job is finished. And I don't really like to be in, in that attention. I don't like it. And and I know that it's a problem because there's a lot of artists that really get off on uh, being famous and popular and, constantly post on social media about what they do. And I try to do it, but I have to always remind myself after like a month not posting anything like, oh, you should get back on and like say something that you're still alive and people think you're active and doing things. But it's not that I really want to do it as much. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of social media in case you haven't heard that in the past. <laughs> I am not. It's a tough... Thing and and I'm not even sure it's really super beneficial. (laughs) You Um. know, like we they say like oh it's the way to do art these days and I'm like is it really like I I would prefer to spend my time trying to think about better our concepts or new techniques or new ideas or trying to get proposals or grants or other things. There's so many other things that I think would be exponentially more beneficial to my career than stressing over putting it together or something for Instagram and then mm-hmm. like being anxious and nervous about whether or not people are appreciating it and like but I, I think I've just grown into a very anxious person about that kind of stuff and like to a certain extent I kind of want to just move away from it like I feel like the sheer volume of that kind of social interaction via the internet has actually made me more anxious about that kind of stuff mm-hmm And I envy you for not participating in it. Good for you.
1: (laughs) Well, I still do, you know, to a pretty good extent. But
0: Now, at one point, you moved to the United States. So, Mm -hmm. like, of course, my thing, I'm from the United States, and I wanted to do nothing but leave the United States. So I'm sort of fascinated why you would choose to move to the United States.
1: Well, I don't know how much it was a conscious choice. When I was an undergrad, I met my now husband. I was taking a class. I'd gotten a scholarship to go to the U.S. and study at one of the very famous glass schools in the U.S. So there is like kind of a very special thing with glass where glass with immigrants moving to the U.S. relatively late in the whole colonization period. You Like in the early turn of the century, 1900s, you started having glass factories in the U.S., And they came, of course, all the knowledge was brought to the U.S. And in Europe, you had small studios that were more like family studios. But in the U.S., it went straight into being industrialized production. So the U.S. has a very different history for glassmaking. And first in the 1960s, you started having the first private studios, the first factory workers that started going independent, opening up something we now call studio glass, And also university programs started in the late 60s to have the first uh, glass program. So it's really new in the US. It really only exists since the beginning of the 70s as something you can learn at university, and also something that is really considered its own art form. And within that, there was a huge push by these young artists to establish their own kind of scene. And so they ended up Creating a lot of specialized schools for glass. There's the Corning Museum of Glass, there's Pilcher Glass School. And I had, and so in Europe, these places are now really known because there's so much knowledge there that's been kind of centralized. While in the US, the whole glass industry was just uh, falling apart and vanishing. So we're like, while the US was getting, coming strong and building up in like the 70s, 80s into the 90s, the opposite happened in Europe with all the industry vanishing. And in the US, the industry vanished too. But then you had these independent studios that started popping up. And here, some countries in Europe have done better. But so I ended up going to the US because in Europe, everybody looks to the US for glassmaking now. So I wanted to study in the US and learn and see what's happening there and went to the US, met my husband as an undergrad And then we ended up having a long-distance relationship for five years across the ocean back and forth.
0: That's not easy.
1: No, it's not easy. Although we we had a good time. We still live, you know, nowadays, we still work so much in different places of the world that in the spring, for example, we're going to be apart for five months. So we often see each other for half a year every year. And the other time we spend apart.
0: I'll tell you, I'm the same way with my wife. Like, we love our time together, but we also love our time apart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there is, you know, I think that it takes a certain type of people that like to have that type of lifestyle, and it takes good communication to make that work as well.
0: What What does your husband do?
1: He is an artist, too. He's a glass oh. artist. He's going to interview with you tomorrow.
0: <laughs> oh, i Totally like I'm I'm just yeah okay I'm piecing together all the emails uh-huh. and everything yes, yes yes okay I remember uh-huh. all Matthew tomorrow yes, yes. okay
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so anyways we we met in the U.S. and I had lived in Europe in a lot of different countries I did my undergrad degree in Denmark and as I was finishing my undergraduate degree I had to leave Denmark because my resident and work permit was running out and I couldn't prove that I had a certain income to make up for what I needed in order to stay. And I was have basically moved in back with my parents in Germany. So the decision for me to move to the U.S. was basically mostly out of the rationale that he had a place to live and he had a job and he had a life there. And I was moving back to my parents and I couldn't really ask him to move in with my parents, you know, and I didn't want to move in with my parents. So the move to the US was really I never thought I would stay there. I I didn't like I didn't foresee that this was like any long term thing because I had moved in Europe for the past eight years, ten years from like one country, half a year here, half a year there, a year here, a year there, three years here, and back and forth. And then all of a sudden I was moving to the US. And then first when I arrived, I was like, Oh, oh, okay, I guess this is this could be for how long? Like what? This forever? <laughs> like I couldn't really imagine what that meant. And uh, since I'd moved so much in Europe, I'd never expected a culture shock to really occur as much as it did. And I was pretty shocked about how difficult it was me in the, for me in the beginning to settle in.
0: Wait, okay, hold on. You're talking about settling in, culture shock in the United States mm-hmm. and settling into the United States, yeah. correct? Okay, yeah. I totally understand it. But you were in Seattle, which
1: I think that's reasonably no,
0: European. I
1: was in Oakland in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, oh, West yeah that's Oakland. totally different. There was a moving into a, a pretty rough environment from the most sheltered European country of Denmark, you can imagine, and Germany.
0: Yeah, I went to graduate school at the San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a, that's a huge culture shock
1: yeah. yes you were uh, the Oakland is a is a much different kind of environment from we lived right next to the uh, the smelter for the recycling so there was you know you get all the pile up of people bringing recycling there were huge homeless encampments of course because of the situation of the housing market in in Oakland we lived in an old warehouse there was a lot of weed growing around. There was all of the Burning Man types. Next to us in the house was a, a punk rock couple that had a band that would practice all the time. It was dirty, nasty. And for me, honestly, Matt had lived there for over 15 years. And for him, it was, he's like this huge hunk of a guy, you know, and it's never been for him any concern. Of course they got a new refrigerator and they left it on the curb to pick up the dolly to bring it in and while they were inside somebody ripped all the copper out of it. Their new refrigerator or like you would you couldn't leave the cover on your truck bed down because they would just slice through it to see if there's something on the inside. So there were all these like incidents of you having to be careful, but he never considered it as a as a problem or unsafe or anything. And for me of course it was a much different problematic where i would get followed home very regularly um, approached all the time and like not always being sure and i would approach it always from this kind of european perspective of like everybody is friendly they just need directions there is you know you don't you always assume the best and not the worst and then i feel like living in the u.s has almost made me be afraid of everybody immediately rather than thinking that they just need to know what time it is or how to get there and there or whatever, which I never had this kind of approach to people of like not knowing, are they friendly? Are they not in Europe? I just didn't have the mindset. And now I don't know that I like that I have that mindset, you know?
0: I'm very sorry that America has put that into you because that's very unfortunate. There are many places in America where that would not be an issue, but that area, yeah, okay, I totally understand it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we first moved to the to Seattle when I went to grad school.
0: Okay, that makes more sense then because I'm like I'm like Seattle's nice. What are you talking about?
1: Seattle is the widest city you can imagine with the most upscale people you ever see and everybody that works for those people lives outside Seattle because you can't afford that city. It's difficult in a different way living there, you know, because Everybody talks as like, it's such a woke place and everybody talks about diversity, but then they want diversity of like, you can look different than me, but you need to have the same income, the same behavior, the same values. So you can look different, but you can't really be different. Like diversity in this uniform way, then then we are all good. As long as we all say stroller mamas with dogs and yoga pants, it's fine, but please don't make any noise.
0: Well, it's also, it's a a diversity in a superficial manner. Like they just want you to look different, but don't think differently, act differently, or get a different Mm -hmm. education or come from a different background. But you can be of a different Mm -hmm. color.
1: Yeah, that's what they want. Otherwise, they know that they have a problem. So they're hyper aware of that.
0: Yeah, that's sad. Seattle used to not be that way, but I guess it is now. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Go to Portland. I hear that that's really cool.
1: Yeah, I almost feel like I would prefer to move to, sounds weird, but like Spokane.
0: Spokane, yeah. No, I know people in Spokane.
1: We just drove through it. It's a decent sized town, but there is something about how it feels when you're in the US that all the art happens in very small centers that are big cities and anything that's around it gets no attention. And there is all of. I, there is for me, like, for example, I'm trying to move back to Europe. And I didn't go to study in Europe because I didn't feel, or like in Germany. I did study in Europe, but I didn't study in Germany. And I'm trying to come back to somewhere in Europe because I noticed that, you know, I didn't see the opportunities here for me in glass. And so I left. And everybody's doing that. But because everybody leaves, you end up having, when you look at what artists come from Germany that have any significance within the field you don't really know that many because everybody's leaving and if you always if everybody always leaves that could do something, then how can ever anything get done? You know, so then moving to to a place that's not always already overrun with funding artists, um, would actually be a better a better thing to do.
0: Agreed. I'm I'm all for that. Like I've Throughout my career, I continually try to sort of not go to the places or in, into the mediums or the whatever that are heavily competitive and and all that because I I don't want to be competitive. I, like mm-hmm. I just want to enjoy doing what I do and be appreciated for what I do. I don't want to be worrying about competition Mm -hmm. uh and i want to be appreciated for you know and respected for what i am doing instead of like what i'm not doing kind of thing and so the idea of going where there's a need and where there's an opportunity versus going where there's a lot of competition i personally see as a a great idea
1: yeah i also like Much more than like avoiding certain art forms or places to not just be appreciated in the competitive way. I think it mostly depends on like what are my reasons to make what I make and do I need to care that nobody else cares about that subject or understands even why I do this or why I get fascinated by it or like right now I'm working on a project about rare earths which are really significant for somebody working in glass because we use them to color glass. And the rare earth market is a really hot market and is basically a huge chunk of international politics but and sanctions as well. But then in the same time, you know, it's not really a popular topic for anybody right now to look into minerals and extraction and exploitation and and so nobody really cares that much that I would do a project about that, but for me it's important. And so like if as long as long as I work on something because I care either about the people that are around me that are interested in it or the project or the, the subject, then the competition for me totally vanishes out of out of my kind of field of vision. I can forget about it all because I care about what I do. And in the end, if somebody likes it, it's great. And if they don't, then I can't help them. Then I, I never made it for anybody else what I make. And there's a lot of projects that are not on my website because I either am not comfortable to share them with the public because they're too private or because I'm not too proud of them because they didn't turn out well or as well as I thought they would. I think that happens to everybody. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, during the pandemic specifically, I started these curation projects that really channeled a lot of the stuff that I had wanted to do for a long time and couldn't because I was too busy just running around after opportunities and invitations. And then all of a sudden with that, like, no competition, a year and a half of zero competition, of zero exhibition, zero performance anxiety, zero expectation from the outside, I really could follow my own. Desires and started a gallery, and I started a digital a curatorial project where I invite artists to create a piece for an inbox format. So you get it, get it as an email, the artwork, and it's specifically for glass artists. The gallery is not. I haven't shown any glass there since we opened, <laughs> but you know, I started doing things where. That I wanted to do for many years, but never found a time and so i've i really i think the pandemic was really good to also show me of like it doesn't matter what the expectation around me is, but only what my own desires are we I just don't get paid anyways for our work, so why would we worry about competition?
0: <laughs> I laugh and i'm and I'm sort of like you know finding that very funny, but on the other hand, it's like but we want to be paid. And quite mm-hmm. honestly, we should be paid for what we do. But it's sadly, you're right. We're generally not paid for what we do. Yeah. So like, you know, why do something that you're miserable at for no, no money when you could do something you're happy about for no money?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I had a situation during the pandemic as well where there was an exhibition that I participated in and a lot of other artists and things weren't going so well. And I tried to come together with the other artists and send a joint email of like, okay, this isn't just an individual being unhappy, but as a group, we agree on certain things. And it didn't happen that way. The email got written and then people got cold feet because artists are always worried about that they end up losing opportunity, that they are not getting invited in the future, that we need to make friends with curators around us so that we even can keep working on what we are doing. So I ended up sending the email alone. And funny Mm -hmm. enough, the organizers were actually happy about it. They made a new exhibition for the coming year. And a lot of the things that were criticized changed. And I think that feedback, as long as artists advocate for themselves and give that feedback of like, listen, you know, I... Just come and set up an exhibition and all the art handlers that helped me set up the exhibition are getting paid an hourly wage. Why don't you pay me that same wage? I'm at this point, nothing else than my own art handler while I set up my own piece. As long as we start doing that, then I think it could change. But there's too many of us that are still not speaking up when they're unhappy. And it doesn't, the thing is like very rarely ever when I said anything, something changed. But I felt better that I at least said something and didn't just let myself get exploited and pretend that I need to be thankful in the same time.
0: It's an interesting dilemma. I don't know how we got into this situation of artists, you know, for more or less like being taken advantage of like mm-hmm. in so many different ways and and yet we it's sort of become the norm and we kind of accept it but we really shouldn't be accepting it like i'm big fan of like the things that I, the conversations i've been hearing a lot about are of course artist fees which you're talking about which is like you know basically being paid for your time and your energy at least for delivery and installation and all that kind of stuff but also things like royalties like i love the mm-hmm. idea of that like i know there is something in in europe about like the secondary market. Like, so if somebody buys your work and then they resell it at an auction house that that the original artist, if they're still alive, or if they have an estate, should get some royalties from that. I love that idea. But unfortunately, it's not true worldwide.
1: No. No, there is also, though, in the US, there's a website called Wage, and they stratify institutions to... So basically... The way it roughly works is an institution they have to submit the highest salary for their highest ranking official, director, whoever they have, and the highest salary, and then also their income as an institution and their expenses as an institution, and they have a formula, and then they calculate out of that how much. Should individual artists get paid for doing performances, for solo exhibition, group exhibitions, lectures, seminars, anything, workshops that they could offer? And if you get wage certified, then you agree that you'll pay that to the artists. And then it gives artists a guideline. And I've often used it when I talk to institutions and they're like, so what what would be reasonable? And I'm like, well, there's this website and you can calculate for yourself what would be reasonable for your size of institution to pay to your artist
0: that's an excellent resource. I will be mm-hmm. sure to look it up and yeah. put a link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm.
1: That would be great. They would probably love it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I will. That, I mean, that's what we're here to do is connect people to the knowledge that they need to you know, do better. Basically. Mm-hmm. Now I want to get to your work itself. Now mm-hmm. uh, th- I looked at your work and sadly I have not seen it in real life. So I've only seen it virtually. And the thing that I was struck with is you call yourself a glass artist and it's kind of one of those little like v- vernacular issues, you know, because like I'm a photographer, but I, I but that's just because it's easy to say photographer. But I think of myself more as like an artist who works with f- for the photographic medium. And I, when I looked at your stuff and all of your different you know, ex- ways of expressing yourself, I was like. You're very, very focused on your concept, and you happen to have chosen glass as a way to express it. So, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I wonder: Are you? Would you define yourself as a glass artist, or maybe more of a conceptual artist that uses glass?
1: Well, that's a difficult question because one thing is that people see that I use glass, or curators see I use glass, and so I immediately get lumped into craft, and that's not where I am with my work at all. So no, I don't like the term. I'm a glass artist at all in that way. But on the other hand, I don't, I'm not an artist that happened to choose glass to make my art because glass for me is more than a material. The only reason that I ever became an artist is because I found a material that is an extension of myself. Glass, compared to any other material, can do things that I haven't found before. So when I use glass, it's not so much by choice, but it's the language I speak best. Because the material, when you think of, like, now I can get really nerdy here, because (laughs) the material is, it is like ceramic in the way that whenever you make a mark on it, it remembers that mark but you can never shape it really with your own hands. It's so hot, you need the tools to always translate your motions. But un- compared to ceramics, it's transparent, which ceramic isn't, so it's a material you can look at and look through. But it's also, whenever you use it, it, it has all these conflicts in itself. It's It's transparent and it's opaque, it's hard and it's soft, it's cold and it's hot, it's fragile and it's really hard. It does, it has like, it always has this negative and positive and these extremes. And it really operates between being really soft and super hard. Like when it's, when it's in the furnace, when it's liquid, it's really soft and fluid and it's a completely different behavior. And then after it's cooled off and it's really cold, it's very hard. You can only grind it with diamond. It's harder than any other material that we use. Like wood, you use the chisels, clay, you use your hands to shape it. And when glass is cold, you need diamond to work it. Of course, there's stone reels as well, but there's very little that can cut glass. And it, it always operates on this on this spectrum of extremes. And that really fits very well with my personality. It's also material that is super quick In decision-making, there's no hesitancy, there's no second-guessing, there's this enormous amount of dynamic action, kind of like almost a hyperactivity that, you know, it's like, and you have to, there's always this fight of who's in control and letting go of control. And those are things that I'm really attracted to. Who is in charge? Is it the material? Is it me? And you can express such an enormous range of emotionalities depending on how you treat the material and which of its qualities you extract from it for a project. So that my projects often really use the materiality as the way of expressing emotions or situations, circumstances, and personal relationships. So in a way, I am the total glass artist because glass isn't the material I happen to use for my art, but it's I've tried to not use glass or I I got really tired of glass and mostly about the glass conversation and then um, stopped using glass for three years and noticed that even though I wasn't using glass, I was attracted to materials that are, some have similar properties. Like I was using salt because it crystallizes out and goes from liquid to a solid and changes shape from looking like water to being crystals. I would use materials that are all transparent. I would use materials that would change state really fast. Like I will use ice and water and fog and smoke. And so I, and then worked with light and transparency. So I stayed completely within the range of properties that I loved so much about glass. And so I found my way back to glass by using, by trying not, or like not, I wasn't trying not to use it, but I was tired of it. And I needed a break. I was like, "Okay, we are in this relationship together. We've been in this relationship for a long time, you and me, and we need to take a break here." I am not happy with you, and then I basically continued my marriage with this material, and we've grown stronger together. I like really don't see this as a material I use, but something I really miss when I don't have it around.
0: I totally understand. I did photography for going on twenty some odd years, and. About five years ago I, I got rid of all my cameras and I stopped taking pictures and, and now I'm working in other mediums and, and and I'm I'm feeling a little bit of a pull back towards the photographic medium, but not enough to actually make me go out and take pictures yet. Mm-hmm. But because partly because I think the you know, certain disciplines and stuff sort of wax and wane in their importance and their values in your own works, but also in society as well. And like for me, photography The, the whole, I feel like a lot of it, there's too, simply too much of it in the world, (laughs) like basically. So like, I'm just like, I I don't know what I can add to Mm -hmm. the entire spectrum of stuff that's being created in the world. I don't think I have any unique perspective in that, but whereas glass, I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to even work in a hot shop, much less like actually do it with some mastery. So like it will always have its niche thing, unlike photography, photography, pretty much anybody can do it.
1: Yeah, but the thing is also with glass, I think we totally underestimate it as a material. Because if you think about that, we are both looking at screens right now to talk to each other. We, you wear glasses, I typically do too. So there's a double layer of glass in between us. Then there is optic fiber cable that's the internet. It's just glass. And without the internet, we wouldn't have, like without glass, we wouldn't have the internet. Without glass, we wouldn't have modern warfare. The only way that laser works is because of glass. And that's based all the modern weaponry. A lot of the components that we use to make all our contemporary gadgets work and our contemporary communication work happens through glass. All our buildings are made of glass. That I, I learned that in modern high-rise construction, 80% of the budget goes to glass because it's also really expensive and it, it half the building is made out of glass. And I think we mm-hmm. underestimate How glass isn't a niche product, but it is in our teeth as well. There's a glass ceramic that we have as the filling in our teeth. It's used in a lot of medical applications. It's a lot of the labware, for example, is also that's all glass because it doesn't, um, uh, how do you call it in English? Like when you pour a, a chemical into glass, it doesn't necessarily react with the glass material so you don't get contamination like you would do in plastics or metal where it actually starts permeate. dissolving, permeate. They also make glasses, for example, that let certain bacterias grow and inhibit the growth of others. I've, I did a residency at Corning Incorporate in upstate New York. Corning makes all the, oh, insulation in, in houses, fiberglass is also glass. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. Any type of ceramic glaze is a type of glass. So I think we underestimate that glass is some kind of niche, especially in art, that it's a niche product or art form, a material. And in reality, it guides most of our contemporary lifestyle.
0: I apologize if I in any way diminished what you do by, by <laughs> no. my statement. I, I meant it more as like the artistic expression mm-hmm. through glass more yeah. than the functional uses of it. Because, I mean, the entire scientific sort of side of it is, you know, a massive. I mean, my grandfather was a chemist, so mm-hmm. like he did like food chemistry and things like this. So, like, I, I get all that kind of stuff, but that, that's different than I believe sort of what you're doing with it. Or at least I think it is. Maybe there's a lot more science in what you do than I think.
1: There is actually a lot of science in melting glass and glass colors. Like, for example, to get any red, you need gold, real gold. That's why red is so expensive and why it's always been really expensive and why we have this royal glassware is those red glass. The easiest is to make green. You just add some iron to it.
0: I would have imagined iron would be blue, but it's green?
1: It's it's green, yeah. Interesting. There's cobalt you can use for blues.
0: I love (laughs) cobalt glass so much. I have a collection of cobalt glass, actually.
1: I mean, there is glass is a lot of chemistry. And when you work with it, it's really interesting, especially in the hot shop where you're so involved in the actual process of making it. You really have to understand really well of like, why is your glass really corny right now? Oh, our flux is burning out. What, how do you need to adjust the temperature? What, how is the state change from liquid to solid happening? What is gravity doing? The whole physics of how life works on Earth. Because gravity, you're constantly working against gravity when you, when you work in hot glass. Otherwise, everything lands on the floor. And that's usually when things go bad. You have to understand heat really well and movement and the nice thing is and i think my work has gradually moved to performance a lot and a good part of it is that in the hot shop when you work with the material my i have i'm right now a visiting professor at the Eugenius Kaprada Academy in Wrocław in Poland and my students that are just beginning to learn how to work with glass they actually struggle most with the choreography of doing something with your left and right hand that is opposite motions, independent movement, and also your brain, left and right brain have to, you know, different coordination, have to work independently. You have to also understand yourself in space and relationship to the equipment, other people, on what side of the pipe do you need to stand? And the choreography is the hard thing to learn. And this performative activity of glassmaking certainly is translated back into my work. And I think because I... Went to Waldorf school. I don't know if that rings a bell. Rudolf Steiner. And we did a lot of kind of theater performance. Eurythmics is a type of gymnastic dance, interpretive dance, I guess you could call it. And so I think that really influenced a lot of where my work is going now as well.
0: It's really interesting because like when you're talking about like just the physicality of doing it like I find this kind of stuff happening all the time because I'm right handed. Uh, and so I assume that I'm going to be, quote unquote, like better on my right side kind of thing. But really, actually, I'm I have strength in my right hand, my dexterity and my is actually better with my left hand. I'm Because I'm weak with my left hand, I'm actually more precise with my left hand where I'm more loose with my right because I think that the strength will overcome that. And so just the nature of sort of I mean, for me, like, do I put my paintbrush in my left hand or my right hand, like, depending on what I'm trying to do kind of thing. Like if I'm trying to force something, I'll use my right hand. If I'm trying to be precise, I'll use my left hand. And that would be the same thing in the the, the working with glass, because, you know, whether you want something to be you know swung around I've been watching blown away so like I get some of the terminology oh, no. so the swung swung around so like the, the you know the and the 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 weight and stuff like you would put it on a certain side versus the versus the other side where you're trying to be more precise kind of thing and that takes a lot of learning because like I mean I'm 48 years old and I'm just figuring this kind of stuff out now
1: yeah yeah and honestly um people under like glass system most difficult of the crafts to learn. It takes at least three years to learn the basics and really make something that comes out as you imagined it in the beginning. And glass is also teamwork. A hundred percent. You can't do it alone. And that teaches a lot of different skills, communication skills, teamworking skills. There is a good reason why there are a bunch of programs existing that teach it to kids as young as 12 years old to make them better partners in life, better adults, help them overcome obstacles as a place where you are creative using all your energy to shape something, but also where you need to communicate and work with others.
0: I have so many questions. Okay, wait, so let's go one question at a time here. So have you and your husband ever been a team in the hot shop together? No,
1: he's also not a glass blower. I learned how to blow glass. He does it a little bit, but no, we actually never a team when we make art, unless one of us, we work for each other all the time. We help each other make our work all the time. We help each other develop ideas and we work really well together that way, but we never make anything together because we have very different approaches to making and ideas and reasons to make anything. And we would never end in the same corner with what we make. We are not creative together. We are assisting each other.
0: That is lovely and poetic. I like that. But then, okay, I looked at some of your works, and one of the things that sort of struck me a lot is like you really seem to like to work on the, I, I use the word didactic or sort of, uh, sort of, uh, contradictory purposes kind of things like you use stone with glass so like a very fragile with a very rough you use the human body like i saw the the two bodies with the glass rods so like so like the the sort of like the permanent against the impermanence the fragile versus the 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 not fragile i'm not sure what the opposite of fragile is (laughs) so like so that sort of dichotomy of sort of like utilizing this thing for the like almost the most frightening thing because everybody's a, a scared of shattered glass and yet you're intentionally like putting your work right on that fine line of l- implying the potential of a shattering.
1: It goes back to to what I said before that like I really love that this material has so many opposites that come together within one material and that's why I really like working with it and on the other hand of course i'm i feel like I myself i myself as a person are full of conflicts and contradiction so of course using a material to abstract away from really personal issues for me is very comfortable because i can translate everything through the material without having to necessarily articulate things in the most vulnerable way possible, which would be through words or imagery. So I think that level of abstraction that the material offers me is really helpful to talk about uh, some more hard issues.
0: Okay, which brings up the two things that – so I'm going to try and tie these two things together into one question. You mentioned some very, very personal works that you don't have on your website. I would love to hear about those, <laughs> A. Secondly, the you you mentioned in your I know, what's it, statement that you have a pers- borderline personality disorder. Yeah. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> Borderline so, And yeah. do they relate to each other in any way?
1: Well, I think glass is the borderline personality itself. <laughs> a borderline personality disorder is a mental illness that people get. There is some genetic predispositions that you need to have, which means that you might be somebody that's Easily, that has depressive tendencies, neurotic tendencies, uh, anxiety.
0: Addictive personalities.
1: Addictive personalities already, yes. People with borderline struggle a lot with different addictions, but because addictions make us have strong emotions. And someone with borderline personality disorder is basically hypersensitive, and people with borderline personality disorder tend to regulate that through drugs. Through getting into bad relationships, through or relationships that provide big mood, big emotional swings, lots of drama.
0: I, I feel like you're talking about me at this moment. <laughs> Go on.
1: And there's also a lot of self harm. For me, glass, I don't had I never had the fear of glass that other people have, the heat getting burned cutting yourself you constantly cut yourself on the material it's just like a daily occurrence and i've never had any any fear of hurting myself harming myself that way the material for me is is you know that's what i talked about the material itself has such huge opposites is something that I feel the material does for me all the time, which is why I don't really see it as a material, but more a part of my character. And it's really nice to have this externalized medium that I can just look at and go, like, "Can you just hold still? Can you just behave now? Why do you need to be? Why do you need to be so hot?" And I really like actually talk to it. I, I guess it's a, it's a very terrible thing that I talk to my art, but I have these whole conversations of like, "Huh." What did you just do right now? Why did you do that? Whenever like, you know, glass, sometimes you try to make an impression in it when it's hot and it just does something really funky. And you're like, huh, why did that happen? Or why did you do that?
0: I don't work in glass. And I I have those conversations as well. It's fine.
1: Yeah. Of course, my, my, my mental health issues, I've had them since my mom already said I had them since I was born. I know them since I could consciously think, and I really got into a lot of trouble when I was a teenager. I think it's for a lot of people think like, oh, Anna Mlazowski, the artist, she's like very successful and she always gets everything and she's like, everything works her way. And nobody imagines really that I dropped out of high school. I almost didn't graduate with my undergraduate degree. I, wanted to quit a month before finishing my MFA. I've never had a job also because I really can fit in really easily or can deal with other people and their judgment of me non-stop because that's my biggest problem that I always feel judged and for me there's being a professional artist is really hard emotionally and mentally because I don't deal well with the expectation. I am not naturally competitive. I don't want to be and I try to also communicate that to all my students that I have now, that this is a place of teamwork and this is a place of care. For example, when I came here to this university, students kept mistreating the tools a lot because they are like, Oh, it's a metal tool. You can just hit and bang everything. And I was like, no, the pipe, the tools, they're like, treat them like your grandma. They're your grandma. You need to be really gentle. These are fragile things. If you bend them, they don't work anymore.
0: It's true, but I mean, but a metal tool should be stronger than a piece of glass. Not when you make it glass. hot. It's true, yes. If the piece of metal is hot, that is very bad and dangerous. They could even shatter and splinter.
1: And if you hit something that's hot, then it will bend. And if a, when you have a bent tool, you can't use it anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, the issue about being judged, I mean, you, you chose probably one of the worst uh, career choices for being judged. It wasn't judged my choice.
1: What I always say, I didn't want to be an artist. We had to in the beginning, I
0: did not want to be an artist. Well, you ended up in one of the worst career choices (laughs) for not wanting to be judged because we are eternally judged on everything. We're judged on our work, our statements, our choices, our personalities, whether we're nice people. Like one of the things that I've run into a lot, which I, you know, I did horribly wrong in my youth which was i was an arrogant little shit most my youth (laughs) thinking that i was really really talented and all this kind of stuff because of course everybody told me i was talented so i was like "Ooh, i'm really talented and and yeah and and it it, a lot of it is also like people want to enjoy to work with us and if you're not enjoyable to work with then you're screwed
1: yeah and i'm not really i'm not really oh how do you say that in english i only know the german word
0: a people person?
1: No, adjusted. You know, like how you call puppies, that they're like house trained?
0: You're not house trained? I'm not very
1: house trained. Okay. I mean, I've had jobs. I worked at a, at a foundry, but always as a as a private contractor, I made molds for them and, and all their waxes for a year, and I had a lot of other jobs. But I think the reason I like to work for myself is really because I'm not very well house trained.
0: Well, I mean, I, every artist, and including myself, would love to just work for myself. Like, I mean, holy mm-hmm. shit, I would be in heaven if I could figure out a way to just work for myself. But unfortunately, we all have to do things to make money on mm-hmm. the side that maybe have – sometimes, you know, like I find that some people – like you're teaching. So like some people choose to find things relevant to their work to make money to, and then they sort of feel like it's an extension of their creativity. Whereas some other people like to do things that are completely devoid of creativity so that they can sort of save up their creative energies for when they have time kind of thing. And it's just two different ways of doing it. But like, Fuck. I mean, I'll tell you, Europe is so much better with its sort of funding mechanisms and opportunities and these kinds of things to make it so that you can I'm not gonna say be rich and all that kind of crap, but like you can choose to be an artist and you will live a fine lifestyle. Yeah. And and there's there'll be funding for you and everything like that. And you you know And healthcare
1: like, and retirement.
0: Oh my God, I know. I so look forward to all that stuff. Yeah, because fuck America is so screwed and backwards on all that shit. Like I want to move to like Scandinavia. They've done it right. Holy shit. Denmark, Finland, Norway, Iceland, all these places. They are so good at this stuff between funding the arts and then socialized medicine and socialized everything else. Like I'm such a fan.
1: Yes, me too. (sighs) Me too. But you also need to live
0: with the people there i have done a little bit of work with the people there and they've been lovely so far i'm going to Lofton actually next year Mm -hmm. so i'm hoping to, to fall in love with the place and convince my wife to move up there
1: you will i did i mean that's the thing i lived in scandinavia for on and off uh no on for five six seven years six seven years and I loved it. I would love to move back. They don't easily let anybody in.
0: <laughs> I've heard these stories, yes.
1: Yeah. I mean I would I would move back there immediately if I could. I also like the the amount of emptiness compared to Germany or Poland or the Czech Republic, fewer people. Using extremes. Satisfies me personally as who I am and what I struggle with or what I live through. But then in the same time, using those extremes is also really informed by having moved around as an adult between so many cultures and places, and also growing up in Germany where everything shifted when I was a kid. And getting to see so many different cultures and approaches to morals, what is polite what is good, what do people have for opinions. And so these, like I use as well in my work, a lot of that material contradiction of like this question of what is right and what is wrong, who gets even to decide if this is good or bad, because a lot of the material properties I use are the ones that we try to avoid, like the breaking of glass, the fragility of it. So for me, they provide me with an opportunity to question reality and it's maybe a little bit too for a lot of, I think in a lot of contemporary art there is a huge desire for having things be more explicitly political or sexual or about your a sexual identity, political identity, questions of belonging and disbelonging and I, I'm i not the type to d- make that work but I think really I think a lot of that who gets to decide what is good and bad, and who can tell me what values I should have or follow when I make my work or when I look at the material. And that comes out of this long tradition that glass also has, that there is an enormous amount of, these are the things we don't want to have happen when we work. This is the correct way of working with something, something." and because I learned all these, I can now consciously break all the rules. And having been somebody that's not house trained really well, you know, breaking rules (laughs) is just in my nature. I just can't do it any other way. And moving through all these cultures and having seen that something that I completely thought is polite in another country becomes impolite or unacceptable. Like I remember going to Japan and was shocked about how short all the skirts were and how everybody was wearing these These, oh God, how do you call them? I never wear them. These uh, stay-up socks that stop on your thighs. Those sexy things. Stockings? Thigh-high
0: stockings.
1: Yes, those sexy stockings with those lacy edges. And even like garter belts, and you would see the clips coming out of the short skirts and like the, the, the shortness of the skirt in Japan was never anything that anybody was concerned about. But then I like to wear tank tops. And at the university there where I worked, they told me that I needed to stop. You can't have the shoulders exposed. You can't wear. And I was like, wait, what? My butt can hang out, but my shoulders can't show And like having experiencing constantly these ideas about somebody deciding like you can do this, but you can't do that. There's a lot of nudity in my work. And in some countries it's really problematic to show nudity for presentations, censorship as well around that. And of course, then in my nature is to go like, oh, let's do it some more if you tell me not to do it. And there is a lot of the rebellious nature of me. And I... If I could, you know, don't get me wrong. If I could be more adjusted to other people and expectations around me, it would make my life much easier. It would make me happier and everybody around me happier for me and how to deal with me. But I can't, I just really, even when I try at some point there is a big explosion and it all falls apart. So I've kind of stopped trying to be more, more adjusted and, and so, like using using the material the way I do is a lot about the irrationality of moral and any moral decision that we seem to think we can make and the judgment we can pass over others.
0: I want to ask a question about like so: if you're going to hold true to your vision like this and not pander to outside influences, how is it that you're able to? Do all that because I mean like that's the dream for most artists is to be able to just basically do whatever the fuck you want to do and not have to pander to the the industry or the whatever like I even I work figuratively also and I worked in the Middle East. And so, of course, working in the Middle East, they don't like figurative artwork. So I had to stop working figuratively for a couple of years while I was there or else I could have gotten arrested. So, I mean, there's a lot of these kinds of things that we always have to struggle with of like how how far do we push something? How, you know, like you, you want to push something enough to flex it, but you don't necessarily always want to break it.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, and I mean I'm lucky that I you the US is probably the place where anything you wanna do is fair game, more so than any other country. So it's a pretty easy country to be provocative, or I don't even think I'm really provocative at all, but to to be feeling supported in any expression at least that you wanna do.
0: I would not say you were that provocative by the no. pro- on your website, anyways.
1: No, I mean that's the thing. Like I think I package it all nicely. That's how I get away with it. Okay,
0: fair enough. You know? Yeah, I would not. I mean, looking through what I saw, I would not have gone like, "Oh, she's incredibly provocative." No,
1: no. Not I at mean, all. I don't. I don't show. And that's some like there's a piece, for example, that I made in 2019, where I stitched thread through my hand, through the palm of my hand. I stitched the word home, Heimat into my hand with the thread and then did this durational performance for myself. It would just work its way out of my skin over two weeks just by, I was setting up an exhibition and showering and going airport, handling things, just working right my regular work and like working out that home out of myself. That was a durational performance that had no audience but me. And it was stitching I did another performance that I did publicly where I invited the audience to join me if they wanted to, and then do just everything I also do. And so they came the and I told everybody, you can opt out any moment you don't feel comfortable and everybody that wanted to join came up and I asked them to stand in a circle with me. And then I took also a needle and thread and stitched it through my finger and gave the needle with the thread to the next person and they did the same. And so it went around in a circle until we all had our hands basically stitched together. And because the string had a certain length, we would all get tighter and tighter by everybody pulling on it so that our hands in the end were all joining in the the center afterwards. And we were all connected through that string. And it was really incredible how powerful that getting stitched together was. And then at some point I just ripped the string out so that I would get free from from that connection. And it really was a performance that was really much just. I think it's on. It would never be good as a documentation in images. It's only good in that moment because in performance often there happens something in the space with the people that are there. That's an amount of energy, and focus, and shared emotionality that you can't reproduce in an image and it doesn't come across. So I don't see the point in documenting that.
0: It is hard documenting performance work because, you know, oftentimes when you document performance works, the documentation becomes an object that is basically representing a thing that nobody actually experienced, but everybody can be like, Oh, it was such a moving thing. So they can tell you how interesting it was, but then the, Imagery becomes becomes the work itself because nobody could have experienced the yeah. actual performance itself. I I find that very difficult.
1: Yeah, and so the, these are like works that aren't on my website and they're very private. There's also a piece from last year from the during the pandemic that is this uh, like a ball that you insert into your mouth. It's glass, and there is a silicone insert. Uh, there's a silicone piece that has the shape of my mouth. And there's a tiny one-inch-by-one-inch one television screen in that silicone insert and in the glass.
0: No, that is on your website.
1: That's on my website, and it fits in. And so it's this devotional performance of words and images, other people's body parts playing inside this TV screen through the lens that's inserted in my mouth from inside my head. And at some point, you, of course, you start drooling. So there is something really sexual to it and something also forced and gagged and I got harassed on social media in the beginning of the pandemic and so that like having other people's thoughts and ideas and words come out of your you know like in the end I always feel that other people have a influence on how we think and what we say and how we behave and feeling like other people were coming out of my mouth. It's called your words worlds in my mouth so the word and worlds there's that wordplay. And that's a piece for me that was very personal. And so there is often, and it was a, meant to be a public performance, but we never opened up again to have especially maskless somebody drooling at you. There was supposed to be performing live performances for an art event where there were multiple performers that walk would walk around with these having, having interacting with the audience. And that's, that's a piece that's that's, very private and personal, and deals with, with something much larger than the piece itself looks like. And then also, there is a piece on there that's called Straight Line Thinking. And it's a performance where I walked in a circle for over 24 miles. So I walked a marathon in a circle, and I was dragging this pencil with me around the room. And I was recording each of the rounds that it was this space that was a circular space, almost hexagonal. And I'm hung up this piece of paper and people could join me. And I walked for nine hours continuously without stopping.
0: Seven hours and 18. Seven
1: hours and, and 18 minutes. Exactly. And so I was walking in this circle, just going around and around and around. And the only reason I stopped was not because time was up or anything. There was no set end to it. But it was because there was always when I was walking or through the hour, something would happen where I would see a change in the line thickness, or I would have a different experience how my body felt, or what I was thinking, or that I just realized I probably hadn't been thinking at all for the last 20 minutes. There was always something happening. And then towards the end, nothing changed anymore. And then I was like, okay, and now there's no point in continuing. Like I've reached the natural conclusion for me because it, it made no emotional difference. And so I stopped walking and I realized when I unrolled that circle, so people that joined me in this space, when the door was closed, it was just this continuous circle of black lines surrounding us. And then when I took that off the wall, the circle turned into a straight line. And I was, I was was, trying to walk out the tr- depression and the depressive phase. And I was caping in my head, just going in circles. And I'd been doing that for months and I couldn't get out of it. And so I was like, okay, maybe if it's just my head turning in circles and I'm just going to do it physically, just maybe then, it, maybe then I can get over it. And it really helped. Like after that, I really overcome my de- depression because I was like, huh, even when you're turning in a circle, it's also just a straight line. I was like, well, you're, going, you're going forwards, backwards, you can go anywhere within that circle, it's just a straight line. And it really helped me doing a performance like that, that I don't think for anybody else has any significance as a piece of art, other than the people that came. Some people walked with me as well. Somebody came in with their guitar and played me songs. Somebody else just took a nap while I was walking around them. Other people like just came and stood there. Some people came back again. People walked with me. I mean it was really interesting the interaction that people had. And because I was in this space all day long, people kept coming and going and it was really quite interesting what happened. And I don't think the piece itself does any justice to to the moment.
0: It feels like kind of like a John Cage kind of piece. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the experience of the creation of it is the piece, not yeah. the object that people now look at and admire and are like, ooh, that's so interesting. The concept, you know, deeply yeah. conceptual work, but like it's really about the, the production of it that was right. the, the point of it.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of my work that actually takes the point in the production or the making process of it as the starting point for the piece and even and in a lot of the early work documents the process of making. Like there's these hand folded glass pieces which was came out of the desire to touch the material and shape it with my own hands, where in glass you always taught that you only you need to use tools. And I just put on these protective gloves and just folded it. It was incredibly hot, of course, but I make shapes that you can't do with tools. And that's the beauty that it really actually gave me a result that is not achievable any other way. And so the process often of making is part of the finished piece in the end as well. And even with the stringer piece where the strings break as the performers move and try to be able to look into each other's eyes because they're facing back to back. So there is this trying to come together in a relationship. It's all about just in a relationship how sometimes we really need to break what connects us in order to see each other and be able to have a new relationship that might be better than what we had until then. So breaking, breaking those strings, it's all about the material process. Being actually the piece, though, you know, I think that's a very basic element of my work.
0: Lovely. Well, thank you very much for the time.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. Please be sure to share this episode and the podcast as a whole with your friends, family, and coworkers. Because part of the intention of this is to help build a community of people that have similar knowledge and similar skills and that we can all do better in our careers than, well, than I did. And, and so learn from my mistakes and make better and try to build a community around all of this. So please, be as I say, be sure to share with your friends because that would be greatly appreciated. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool, an art podcast, is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.